Whenever you're ready. And should I look there or anywhere? In situ. In situ. Yeah, it's uh, in situ, in situ, in situ, in situ. That is so good. In situ, in situ, in situ, in situ. Okay, so in situ. In situ is the name of the European platform for artistic creation in public space. Led by Lieu Public, we are based in Marseille, France. And in this podcast, you will hear the voices of our members who live and work all across Europe. Nature, social justice, cultural identity, digital spaces, communities, regeneration of places. Each episode will bring a specific topic of conversation between three of our members. A partner, an associate artist and an associate citizen. Uncommon Spaces is the name of our current project and we welcome you to the Institute podcast. In this fourth episode, we will discuss around the topic of nature. Kisles We from Ural Festival in the Netherlands is our partner. Our associate citizen is Paul Forecast from Norfolk and Norwich Festival in the UK. And Nana Francisca Shetlander from Denmark is our associate artist from Metropolis in Copenhagen. This conversation was recorded remotely from behind our computers, so we asked our three participants to start with a presentation of themselves. So my name is Nana Francisca Schottlander, and I work within the sphere of dance, performance and installation, and I've done that for many years, but within the last seven years or so, Um, there was a shift and I started employing strategies of uh, immersion, uh, long duration, uh, participatory creation and, um, and research in working with landscapes. So going from working with other people, creating participatory pieces to sort of engaging these strategies in co-creational encounters with different kinds of landscapes and using my own body and my experience as a dancer and a performer to engage in these encounters and dialogues with the landscapes and their inherent phenomena and materials and stories. Hello, my name is Kees Lesui. Uh, I'm artistic director of the Ural Festival. And the Ural Festival is uh, located on an island. Uh, the island is called Ter Schelling. And it's one of the islands in the north of the Netherlands, one of the Wadden Islands. Um, I worked there as uh, artistic director now for almost 15 years. Um, and this festival has Uh, very specific um, the specificity of this festival is that it's situated on a natural island so the landscape nature is part of the whole experience of the festival it's part of the the, the story of the festival it's part of the, the the start of the festival so in a way for me uh, this island is like a partner 
in uh, the whole creation of the festival. It's like a, it's, it's a partner, it's, it's um, a participant and it's the, the stage, but it's also the source of inspiration and it's a source of dialogue. So in a way, for us, uh, for creating this festival, we invite artists and we ask them to reflect on why should you perform here? Why? What would you want to tell here? What's your dream here? If you, and uh, how is it connected to this landscape? Hi, I'm uh, Paul Forecast. Yes, I'm the uh, regional director for the National Trust uh, in England. And uh, the National Trust is a, is a charity. We've existed for over 125 years. And our job is around protecting uh, places that are interesting for their history, for their landscape, for their beauty, for their nature. Um, and therefore, a big part of our conservation work is protecting landscapes that are uh, valuable to people and, and providing access to them. And we have a whole range of, uh, uh, of landscapes. So right from coastline that looks very similar to that on the sort of north coast of the Netherlands on the east coast, through to mountains, uh, through to Fenland landscapes, uh, through to rolling hills and, and country estates, a really beautiful kind of landscapes. And as I say, our job is to both protect those landscapes, but crucially to provide access to them. I was inspired by what Kees said, because, I mean, the landscape is both a uh a partner and the inspiration and the stage, like you said it. Um, and and I thought that was beautiful because in a way, what I find so fascinating is when I start working with the landscape is it's not, it's really not about me and my clever ideas. It's about what what do I meet here? What is this landscape? And what are the potentials that can be brought forth so in the beginning of a process of getting to know a landscape, it's always a lot of of visiting the place, of trying to understand it, moving into it, understanding both from a research perspective, like how was this landscape formed, what what factors are, are present in, in the way it looks now, geologically, meteorologically, human, in terms of human inter interference. Um, but also, what, what does it mean to be a body here? What does it mean to be a human body? But what other kinds of bodies are present in this landscape? And how can I find ways to, to meet or enhance or make visible all these different types of, of bodies or phenomena that are present here? So, um, in a, in a, Quite a few of the projects I've done coming back to the landscape in the course of a year maybe has been a, a big part of it to really get a sense of, you know, when you come to a landscape on a sunny day, it's one thing. And then when you come and it's uh, frosty, uh, it's a completely different thing. So to really get a sense of also how a landscape changes in the course of a year, to just understand a little bit more about the different dynamics that take place there what life is like there. Um, and usually in the course of this research phase, I will work with a photographer, video photographer, composer to sort of um, develop material that, that comes out of this research where I use my body to explore and encounter and in a way create these really 
uh, abstract um, contact improvisations between my body and the landscape. And then that becomes video works or uh, we do field recordings that are turned into compositions that uh, that are used in both performances and, and exhibitions. Um, and then in the course of getting to know the landscape, it also becomes clearer and clearer what is it interesting to invite other people into experiencing in this place. Not just the walk through the landscape like we always do, this is how we normally consume a landscape, but how can we, how can I create a sort of frame for letting people experience both the landscape and the themes in this landscape with their own bodies and their own perceptions and senses. Um, so that then becomes the performative element of sort of inviting and guiding people into this landscape to explore it and to, in a way, enact, I'm doing these uh, funny signs around the enact uh, word, um, enact the performance themselves in the way they encounter the landscape. We've done similar sort of things that um, we've used our properties uh, across the country for artists that come in and be inspired by the places that we look after. Uh, we don't use dance a lot, so dance is probably one of the sort of the, the art forms that we use less. We use a lot of theatre, we use a lot of um, uh, painting and sculpture and things like that are, are the kind of core things that we sort of do. Um, but certainly, you know, we're experiencing uh, more often than not that people want to experience uh, the environment through art. So um, I was on Friday night as part of a big festival that's being run in the UK. We did a, a kind of light show uh, across one of our landscapes, a place called Dunstable Downs, which is kind of this beautiful uh, kind of chalk hillside that sits atop uh, uh, an area that's really sort of flat. So you have these incredible kind of views. And we had a group of people, we probably had about four or 500 members of the public who came and they each had a light that was remotely controlled. So it was one of these things that had sort of multiple LED lights and they sort of moved through the landscape and the artist then sort of um, took a video of them um, using uh, uh, using a drone to sort of capture the footage and then they sort of cut it together. And I think what was really interesting about it is is that we see uh, very different people coming to National Trust sites to come and do that artwork. So as with most charities, you, you kind of have a group of people that are very loyal and sort of come very often, but they are of a type. Um, but this was kind of attracting people from uh, sort of many different sort of walks of life and I think kind of felt connected. And I think that was the lovely thing about it was there was 500 random people. You know, some people knew each other because they'd come as families, but most people didn't know each other. And they came for that kind of collective experience of kind of creating art in the landscape and really loved it. You know, really kind of um, uh, had a, got a good sort of um, got a lot from it and sort of felt sort of connected by doing so. Most people, I think, would say that they're interested in nature or art or many of the things that are kind of passions come when they're children, don't they? So 
I knew from the age of about seven years old that I wanted to work in conservation and I've been incredibly lucky to do so. So I think that thing around sort of connecting with children, I think is so important because I think the things that we care about form them. And I've got an eight year old daughter. She sings, she dances, she goes to theatre. She's got a kind of bedroom full of, you know, artist material. She's always doing something and it's really nice to sort of nurture that. Um, in relation to how the trust um, acquires its properties, um, it, it acquires properties that, that we call a significant. Uh, so more often than not, the landscapes that are in our care are either national parks or in the UK, we have things which we call areas of outstanding natural beauty. And we tend to sort of acquire sites like that. We also acquire sites um, that were designed by landscape architects in the past. So people like Capability Brown or Repton, these are famous landscape architects in, in England. So we have a criteria for choosing uh, those. And some of our landscapes are just special uh, and were recognised as being special a long time ago. So we own a lot of the Lake District where Wordsworth wrote a lot of his poetry. One of the sites that I look after is a place called Flatford Mill, which is where John Constable was born and where many of these kind of most famous paintings were created. We own um, Thomas Hardy's house in the sort of Dorset Heathlands. We own Edward Elgar's house, uh, who's a famous uh, uh, classical uh, musician. So, so very often the places have got that kind of link to history that people in the past have recognised the beauty of these places. And part of our role is to sort of protect them into the future. How do we relate as a human to nature? Do we work with it? Do we fight it? Are we part of it? For us, that's a theme of our festival. It's an island with seven villages. Almost 5,000 people live there permanently, so there's a life uh, uh, and you have to take a boat for two hours to, to reach it. But um, 100 years ago, it was quite remote. There were some farmers, some fishermen, and um, the sand had, could go everywhere. So there were villages where, when there was a big storm, there was a lot of sand covering houses. So each time they had to clear the houses. And then came the state forest management and they started to plant trees, pine trees, young pine trees. And now a big part of the island is covered with it. So it looks like a forest. Uh, there's forests, there's, there's all kinds of landscapes now. But 100 years ago, it was not like that. So this, this planting of these trees really changed a lot. And it was all, also, it was not for making the island more beautiful. It was for a forest planted to use the, the, the wood for the mining industry. So there was directly an economical connection for why there should be a, a forest on one hand. On the other hand was to stop the sand moving. So now people come, a lot of tourists come, a lot of everyone who comes on the island says, wow, this is beautiful nature. But in fact, uh, it's really really constructed. Of course, the wind, the, the, there's a lot of natural elements which make, uh, make it a very natural environment and it's a very protected air environment. It's protected because it's a very important place in the, the bird migration. So it's a resting place for birds from Africa to, to the north and back. So there's a lot of um, 
specialities around this whole area and the sea next to it, the shallow sea also has a lot of special species. So there is a lot of nature, but sometimes you have to look for it. Uh, the romantic idea of beautiful landscape for me is less important. Uh, in a way, the most interesting parts of the island are uh, are made by men. <laughs> it's, uh, it's strange to say. Or it's the, this strange dialogue. A lot of the landscapes that we conceive of as natural and as uh, something that we need to protect and maintain in the form they have now uh, are actually very dynamic landscapes that 100, 200, 300 years looked completely different. And we sort of have this idea of nature as like the way it looked in our childhood, that's how we should preserve it. And we want to sort of keep this snapshot of this is how this particular area should look. Um, and I think working in some of these national parks and preserved uh, nature areas, uh, I stumbled across quite a few times this dynamic of like how much human agency has also played part in shaping these landscapes and this notion of untouched nature, especially in our very busy globalized um, uh, production uh, crazy time this notion of untouched landscape is becoming increasingly sort of an illusion because human activity is making an imprint even on the landscapes we don't touch or reach so this is the the notion of the anthropocene that now human activity is making a lasting imprint in the sediments of of natural history that will be recorded long after we may not be here anymore anyways long time into the future and i think so this is something of course i think a lot about and i work a lot with because what is this distinction between human and nature and and this is like this is a construct this is a a scientific maybe even a religious construct to sort of set humans apart and set them as those who need to um um, control nature, uh, uh, use resources, uh, master the danger of nature, which I guess has definitely had its uh, advantages as we are quite weak um, in comparison to other species. So these notions are important. I don't know how to phrase these things, but I think it's it's important to keep challenging this distinction between human and non-human or human and other than human because, or between human and nature. I mean, that distinction is crucial to challenge because I think in that distinction lie, lie a lot of the trouble we are experiencing with environmental disasters and overproduction and overconsumption because in that distinction we see nature as something apart from us, that we can use and shape and extract and transport and uh, just put into our agenda at will. And, and we forget that our actions uh, are part of these natural cycles 
uh, and that we leave marks in the way we interact in these natural cycles. So this is a really long um, uh, row of words to get to why I think art has an important part in this, because I think when we work artistically with landscapes and with different ways of perceiving a relationship between a human body and a other than human body, I think there is the potential of shifting this perception of uh, being distinct from each other or this perception of separation between human and nature and to understand that there is a continuous relationship and that this continuous relationship um, requires uh, different ways of relating from us. Um, and so this is what I'm curious about is like, how can I, in the works I do, uh, find other ways of relating and sharing other ways of relating so that these experiences can help shift the perception of how to be in and with the world that we call natural. I think what's quite interesting in relation to kind of art and our sort of place in, in the natural world is, um, is that on the one hand, art has been sort of really fundamental in changing our opinion about places. Um, so a really brilliant example is the Lake District, which is a, uh, revered in England as, you know, probably the most beautiful place that you can go to. Um, but that wasn't always the case. If you read any articles in the sort of 17th century, people hated the Lake District. They thought it was this barren, awful place that nobody should go to. Uh, and nobody ever went there. It was a, it was a kind of wilderness, really. And it was only through kind of Wordsworth's poetry that it suddenly became somewhere to go. You know, in actual fact, you know, one individual and his work change fundamentally our sort of view of, of that place. So I think it's that. I think the other thing I'd say uh, about art and conservation is I've got a sort of view that part, um, conservation is a human choice. We don't have to be conservationists. We have to choose to be so. And in order to uh, do conservation, you have to be engaged in your heart. There's no, there's very little uh, monetary reason or or um, a practical reason to sort of care for other species. Uh, and therefore, um, you have to kind of engage with people's heart. And very often, the, the things that do that best is some sort of art form. And that by something very simple, like a beautiful film or a, you know, Doc, you know wildlife documentary right through to you know kind of the, the work that's been talked about on this call so I think art has got a kind of critical role to play and then I think the other thing is is that art is helping us make sense of some of the really big topics that are happening particularly climate change which I think many people find incredibly frightening and I think finding a way to engage with people that are either sceptical or frightened or are unclear about what to sort of do next. I think art has got a kind of critical role to play. And we're seeing that sort of come through in a way that, you know, straightforward documentaries or telling people they should care about it uh, don't have the sort of cut through. Well, in a way, 
You could uh, argue that it would be better for the environment not to organize a big scale festival on a small island, almost 50,000 people uh, in 10 days to an island and uh, seeing a lot of performance. Uh, so that that's one thought which is uh, puzzling us. Uh, our festival exists for 40 years and there has been many changes in this 40 years. Many insights are growing. And, um, but still we think um, uh, we need places for uh, reflection and for inspiration and for hope. And in a way, this 10 days of uh, organizing a festival with uh, a lot of people, we succeed in our festival if we, if, we, if we can do a little of this. If we can use the imagination, use the, 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 the power of imagination and the, the, the creativity to speak about these difficult topics because you could get easily very depressed nowadays if, if you see all the, 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 the problems that's facing us uh, in the and of course, that's true. We have to face them and we have to speak about it. But also, we I recently heard someone said we are in a time of big transitions and the way we live, the way we use the, our surroundings, the way we live together uh, with a lot of questions, a lot of frictions, and it will be worse. <laughs> uh, but still... Um, uh, you could call this uh, transition pain, but you could also look for places where you use the word transition pleasure to to see if you can face these problems, think about uh, new solutions, or even to speak to each other. Uh, for instance, on climate change, there's still people who deny it's happening. So even if we could create places where people who deny it and who can who and scientists and, and, and artists can speak together about this, then we are steps ahead. And I think the art can create situations that you well that you first experience something. Uh, for instance we have these beaches which are very shallow and so sometimes there's a project where, where you use the coming of the water and going of the water in a couple of hours' time. And if you experience this, if you're with your feet there, you think differently uh, about these questions than when you're in a big city and you, you never experience this. And, and when you see what happens when, the when there's high tide, when there's storm, when... So these are very clear examples, but in many levels you can work on this. So this, this transition pleasure, uh, working on, on the imagination, I think it's a really important task for the art world at the moment. Not only to be um, dealing with these topics, but to help open, open the minds. And um, this temporary society of a festival can be a place where we can learn and speak and discuss. And I think landscape is like a, an imprint of what is there at that moment. So it's a reality which, which is a very good way of thinking, working. And so you have to learn, you have to learn, <laughs> you learn and we, we get on, we, get, we become wiser.
what can we do better in our practice? It's definitely always a relevant question and it's something that I, I think quite a lot about because even when we produce art, we still adhere to ideas of production and consumption even if it's art that's being produced and consumed. And I there's just some kind of tickling in the back of my head, something like, okay, how can these firm ideas of what 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 is the level of production needed for something to be good or how many people need to experience it for it to be valid or wherein does the experience lie and like to somehow keep challenging these notions because there is a lot of resources going into these notions of production and consumption even if it it's art. Um, so I definitely think it's interesting to explore other ways of producing and other ways of of sharing or presenting uh, an art piece and to step back from these, God, I'm using these quotation marks quite a lot. No, but from these like easy, easy ways of of seducing an audience or creating a wow effect but to really like say how little can you actually use how little intervention is needed but still to create like deeply um, inspirational and beautiful and meaningful and thought-provoking experiences um, so I'm thinking a lot about like can I really just work with what is there what happens if I only work with what is there? I don't bring anything. I don't add anything. I just work with what is there. And then this notion of time, because it takes a lot of time then. If if we can't do the, 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 the fast wow uh, effects, then what is required is a lot of time to build and to deepen and to understand and to develop and and to really make something come into existence from what is there. Um, so recently I did a production where I was working with, uh, collaborating with some plants um, and uh, I wanted to dye the costumes that the audiences were wearing uh, with the plants. Uh, and it was uh, 40 suits, 40 cotton suits that had to be dyed. And I realized that it is a really long and arduous process of dyeing with natural dye and collecting the plants and all the different parts of the process. And in the end, I realized, okay, if I was to do this, then that would be the project. The project would be that I had dyed with the plant 40 suits for people to wear, but there would be nothing left because there was not time. There was not anything left after that. So I had to skip to the easy solution and use the unnatural dye for the suits. And it looked great, but it was really an example of this, like, okay, if I really want to work with what is there and really want to use that in the process, then that is a completely different time scale. We go through the same dilemma in terms of um, what's the ecological footprint of sharing special places with people. So, um, 
Every year we get about 25 million people visit our properties with the largest tourist attraction in the UK. And most people, because of where our properties are, they're in the middle of countryside, often come by car. So that, that kind of presents a challenge. And I can reconcile it in, in several ways. I, I think the first of which is there's a lovely quote from David Attenborough who says, no one will protect what they don't care about and no one will care about what they have never experienced. So for me, the trade-off of people coming to your Island Keys or coming to see one of your performances, Francesca, is, is that um, we hope that they leave having sort of felt something that will actually change the way that they sort of operate in their lives. And I think, you know, like you, we're thinking about how we become more sustainable. So we're moving on to renewable energy. We're creating new habitats. We're planting trees. We're doing all sorts of different things um, to, to settle that. But I think there's a bigger issue than the sustainability. And that's actually about the relevance and reach. And what I mean by that is I think many people that I see come into either National Trust properties or to art events or are largely people who don't need convincing of the need to act environmentally. So we're largely talking to the same people who are already converted. And I think for me, the real risk is that we kind of satisfy ourselves with that and actually sort of say, how do you reach somebody who's a skeptic? How do you reach um, an underrepresented groups, people from black and ethnic minority groups, or people with disabilities or um, teenagers, you know, people that are generally speaking kind of less represented uh, in either the arts or sort of visiting historic houses or nature conservation places. And I think if we don't reach that group, I think we run the real risk that, you know, they won't care about these issues. They they won't be sort of taking changes in their own lives. So for me, that is the bigger risk um, at play here, as opposed to the sustainability of a, you know, a relatively small um, art project or a small nature reserve or whatever else it might be. We have also an internal uh, responsibility on, on making it happen, this festival. And there's really big discussions because it's 40 years ago, we could go everywhere and we could do anything. And now after two years of not having a festival in the COVID time, we really feel the, the world has changed a lot and there's an acceleration in, in we have to take responsibility in our own acts as well. And we feel that we have reached the limit of what we uh, touched on the limits of what we can do on the island. So we have to step back. We have to not to become bigger. It's not possible, but even to get back to, to be more in balance with how we can, in a sustainable, sustainable way, uh, be partner in this island, be in dialogue with the artists with the audience with the landscape with the people from the island so we are looking for a new balance which means that the festival might become a bit smaller one thing that is also interesting is to work outside of institutional spaces uh, because by placing things in the public sphere you will automatically engage with with people who might not seek out this experience um, and then the challenge is how to create an experience in public space that is accessible enough and 
intriguing enough and thought-provoking enough for that to happen. But I really think, you know, as soon as you place them inside institutional frameworks, you will meet the people who seek out those frameworks. Cities, in a way, are nature too. It's just shaped and molded and, and it's our imprint. Uh, it's our expression of nature, so to speak. Um, and, and I think working with like these traces of awareness, I mean, even just starting in the city, starting with the rocks on the, on the ground or uh, the concrete of the buildings or the, the trees in the park. And then, I mean, it's, it's all there. It's just that we have these distinct ideas again of what is nature and what is urban and it's just an illusion. We live in dystopic times, but we won't find the answers we need by being dystopic and depressed and saying, ah, oh, it's all too late. I, I sometimes say that I like to place myself in the middle of that which I'm criticizing and from there pointing towards new potentials or new openings. Um, because, I mean, if there's one thing we're really good at as humans, it's inventing and speculating and adapting and learning. And we need to keep on doing that um, just with maybe a bit more awareness of the interrelatedness of all these cycles and networks that we are part of. This episode was recorded during last summer. Our next episode will be a discussion around cultural identity. Feriel Rally and Benjamin Langang have been coordinating this podcast and Jeanne Robet has been editing it. This podcast is co-funded by the Creative Europe Programme of the European Union. Thank you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation.